from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about Kaisha Bank creating a 100-person strong team to develop Gen AI initiatives. And we discussed whether 100 people is even enough, given the scale of the opportunity, particularly in the banking industry, for generative AI to enable employees to become more efficient and potentially need fewer employees in the long term. TikTok acquires Indonesian e-commerce firm Tokopedia, and we discussed whether social media is sufficiently regulated in parts of Asia, whether there's enough protection for customers, whether it's too easy to buy things, or whether this is too much regulation. Super interesting discussion. And this is our final FinTech Insider news before Christmas. So what has made it onto your naughty and nice list this year? So we talked about the fintechs for good and the fintechs that are maybe a little bit bad. We get into all this and much more on today's show. Back after these messages. Hey, everybody, it's David Breer here, 11FS CEO and host of Fintech Insider. If you allow me, I'm going to take a few moments of your time to tell you about something that's really, really important to me personally. Every 10 minutes, somebody in the UK is given the devastating news that they have bone cancer. I've been in one of those rooms and, and heard it come out of a doctor's mouth myself to somebody that I love, and it can be a truly devastating thing for families and, and individuals. Here at 11FS, we are all joined the fight against this brutal disease. But just as we cannot fix the financial services system on our own, we're calling on all of our amazing community members to help us face into this challenge. The Bone Cancer Research Trust is our official charity partner here at 11FS. It is the only charity in the UK dedicated to this cause. They tirelessly fund groundbreaking research, life-saving awareness initiatives, and provide vital support to patients and their loved ones, all without any government funding. We make this podcast for you guys, our listeners, and it's free and always will be. But if you enjoy what we do, then please check out the Bone Cancer Research Trust's crucial work and learn how you can join us in kicking bone cancer's butt. Check it out over on 11fs.com forward slash BCRT. That's 11fs.com forward slash BCRT. Welcome to episode 812 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensel, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests who are here to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, a big hello to my co-host, Rachel Panjan, Ventures Product Lead at 11FS. How are you? I'm doing well. Every day we are a little step closer to Christmas, so I'm thrilled about that and also thrilled to talk about some of the stories on here today. Aside from the mince pies and mulled wine, have you been working on any exciting uh, client projects recently without mentioning any names, obviously? Oh, I'm working on a lot of proposals, so I feel like I actually, I can't talk about anything. Um, but no, what um, I'm really excited for some of the projects that we've got coming up in the new year. I feel like we're starting to see more exciting work around get, getting stuff built and also some more exciting work about how do we really change the business model on how we create new ventures and, and build something truly different. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the new year. Got some exciting stuff in the pipeline. 
We're also delighted to have a fintech insider debut for Aditi Subarao, Global Financial Services Lead at Instabase. It's great to have you here, Aditi. Please tell our listeners a little bit about you and about what you do at Instabase. Please. Absolutely. And it's great to be here, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. So I lead the financial services industry vertical at Instabase, where I work with some of the largest uh, FS organizations of across the world to apply AI to make their business processes better and help them serve customers better. I spent more than a decade in banking, after which I moved to tech. And now with Instabase, we have a mission of helping the world turn its unstructured data into insights instantly. So it's all very exciting, especially over the last year with developments in generative AI and so on. And I'm glad to be here to speak about some of that as well. Definitely. Well, welcome. And it's also a big hello to Megan Cooper, Chief Product Officer at ClearBank. It's great to have you join us, Megan, and get you back on the show again. Congratulations on your new role. Please, would you tell our listeners a little bit more about what your role is at uh, ClearBank? I mean, to the extent it's not obvious from Chief Product Officer, um, but also what ClearBank is for, for you know, our many listeners uh, who are in countries all around the world may not have heard of ClearBank. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your role and ClearBank, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so ClearBank is one of what I would describe uh, the OG challenger banks. So when I first moved to the UK, I was helping to start Starling Bank. And at the time when we looked out across the horizon, the other big banks were, you know, Monzo, Adam, Tandem, ClearBank. We were all looking at each other, you know, wondering what each of them were doing and with what effect. Starling and Monzo, uh, Adam and Tandem were all in a very consumer-facing field, developing current accounts, mortgages, things that everyday people would use. ClearBank was a different kind of bank. So they built the first clearing bank in 250 years in the UK. They are very different from other banks also in that they don't do fractional banking. Uh, so they do clearing and embedded banking as their main focus. And they've really focused on the infrastructure and innovating um, on the back end of banking and on payments and that technology. Um, so as group chief product officer, as you can imagine, I do kind of what it says on the tin, so leading product and product strategy. And I'm I'm super excited to join. Well, fantastic. And congratulations again and welcome. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's jump into our news. And we'll start with our two big stories uh, of the week. So our first big story is that Caixa Bank in Spain has created a 100-person strong Gen AI team. And this was reported um, in, in a range of media, including Finextra. So the Spanish financial services company has assembled a 100-strong task force to work exclusively on and develop generative AI projects. Caixa Bank is working closely with Microsoft, which gives it access to GPT models and secure test environments. Additionally, a series of working groups have been created to develop real use cases where generative AI can improve the employee experience. And Caixa Bank plans to roll this out across the wider business in early 2024. Aditi, I think it makes sense to come to, to, to you first. How exciting is it to see sort of large European banks sort of setting up 100-person teams to focus on AI and generative AI? It is very exciting. And I will also add that it's not at all surprising. So there's a few statistics that, that I'd like to share. When I, when I read this headline, there were a couple of things I looked up. So first of all, according to their website, Kasha Bank has 44,771 employees. Now, McKinsey has recently put out a couple of reports on generative AI, where they say the statistics and their analysis shows that banking is one of the largest beneficiaries um, 
as far as industries go of generative AI. And they expect anywhere between 9 to 15% of increase in operational profits because of Gen AI in the banking space. Now, when you think about it in that context, like if you're having your profits increase by 15%, the ratio of 100 people to 44,000 employees is actually quite small. And from that perspective, the fact that they have gone out there and said this is exclusively dedicated to generative AI, I think it's a great step because traditional AI banks have been working on for decades, right? Like all of these mm-hmm. banks will have hundreds and hundreds of people who have experimented with and applied and deployed AI and using it in production in some way or shape or form. But generative AI in itself, the fact that they've carved this out exclusively is a great thing. And the second reason it's very exciting is because what we've been seeing over the last few months is most banks that are looking into Gen AI are very much in exploratory mode and it has very much been isolated from the main lines of business or from business critical functions because it's still being treated in a testing fashion. Let's see how it goes. Let's see how safe it is. Let's see what value it can bring. Whereas in this article, what Kaisha is raising their hands to do is to say that we will find genuine business use cases where there is real business value and get these people to start working on them. So I think that is the most interesting piece of this. And I can only hope that more banks um, realize that it's now time to turn experimentation into actual action and adoption. So you're almost saying that they're not investing enough. They need more people. Oh, Absolutely. Like if if you were to ask me, I think every single banker needs to learn and be actively involved with AI for sure. Megan, as as the the, the banker in the room, or the or wasn't employed by a bank in the in the room, um, what, <laughs> what do you make of this story? Yeah. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I will say I started my career in fintech, and I've always considered myself tech. So I love that I'm now a banker. I feel like I've officially like <laughs> made it. I mean, you work in Barclays for five years, and now you're officially just full banking. You know, I love it. Um, but yeah, so back in 2018, I gave this keynote at AI machine learning world at like the Excel in London. And I remember when they asked me to do it, I felt like, to Aditi's point, there had been a lot of work in AI for years in banking, but it wasn't mind-blowing, so to speak. So I tried to decline it, and they were like, we will move the date of the conference if you can make this and give the keynote. So I was like, okay, I'm going (laughs) to do it. So I get up, and I'm talking about the use cases are like fraud and AML. It's robo-investing from like the wealth management services, chatbots and customer service. There were definitely strides being made and big investments already starting at the time. But I would say the progress was just slow, and a lot of it was fancy decision trees, right? It wasn't, but I would say over the past 12 to 24 months, we've had such huge evolutions in AI coming out of Microsoft, seeing that they're partnering with them and everything that they're doing with ChatGPT. I think it's really impressive. But the other thing I would caveat is even though now I think AI is at a point of maturity where this kind of investment can really sink in and make great strides, when I looked at that 100 person number, I think whether or not that's a big investment and will be a useful investment depends on the amount of budget allocated to that. Because AI is still so new, some of the talent and the best talent can be very expensive. So there's almost to say, like, if you have a huge budget, then yes, absolutely 100 people. But if you don't have that big of a budget, would it maybe be better to do fewer, but of people who are really cutting edge and the particular use cases that you're wanting to kind of flesh out? I think it really depends. But without that number, it's kind of hard to us to say how big the investment is. But regardless, I think it's very exciting and all banks 
should really be doing a, a kind of a similar strategy to consider AI, how this particular use case is evolving and what they need to do to kind of stay ahead of the curve. Definitely. I mean, Barcelona is a wonderful place to, to, to live. Just just saying in case anyone from Kaisha Bank's <laughs> recruitment team is listening in. <laughs> I think, Meg, it, like you've made, you've hit it on the head there in terms of the investment and, and how it actually factors into ways of working. Because I, I, I actually don't think banks are bad at bringing in teams like this. How many times have we seen crypto teams, open banking teams, all of these teams that are just allocated the technology, but you still have a whole bank operating around that and they don't think about you. And so you have to go pitch to them and be like, by the way, I've been working on some Gen AI, you should also use it too. And I think that's the thing I still don't see shifting. And so for a hundred person team to have a huge impact, why are they a hundred person team by themselves? How are we integrating them back into the business? And Aditi, you said as a joke, like maybe all bankers should be using Gen AI. They, they should be, because how else do you understand and know the benefits of this technology and I I think for this to really work and I actually feel like I think NatWest have got have done a really good job of shifting into a more technology-led mindset although like the app has changed massively and it's become way more digitally native has it adopted some of these more innovative technologies beyond on Cora I'm I'm not as sure but I think this is this is the shift we have to now see. It's not about just investing in these technologies and these teams, but it's actually about incorporating it into your day-to-day -day work. Because as far as I know, the last time I looked at bank org structures, tech are still ring-fetched in are a we, different place. Are we being unfair to the Spanish banks here? Because banks like True. banks like CaixaBank <laughs> and BBVA are among the most innovative in Europe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, CaixaBank's been innovating for a couple of decades. It's done, you know, it was one of the earliest leaders in mobile banking. It's been a leader in many different areas. Um, are we are we underestimating them? I see so this is I, I think that's a totally fair point because I think that there's two sides to this. Banks in general and how they use tech, but the Spanish banking scene, like they've got I think it's like the third bit largest number of fintechs. I was looking at a stat that's where was it? Like the adoption of fintech players increased massively because there's been an increased consumer adoption of digital services like in it was 56 percent in 2021 where does that go to now there's so much potential in the spanish market so i i would say it'd be a really cool project to see succeed in the future and get to see those innovations live in the market i think to to that point um almost uh, even from the point of view of are we being unfair like were they already operating at a higher standard i think the other advantage that they've had, and this is not just the Spanish banks, but Iberia overall, even Italy to some extent, is that the proportions of revenues that come from retail and the corporate space, as opposed to wholesale banking or like CIBs, is obviously higher. And given that a lot of innovation in the payment space and mobile banking has happened in that segment, these banks have already started looking at their data very differently. Like they have access to a lot more data about their customers, about their consumers, and they've they've been, I would say, relatively more focused on using that data to then personalize services and make the right recommendations and then add on products like insurance and investing and so on as part of their mobile offering. Whereas the larger banks tend to be a lot more kind of CIB, uh, corporate and investment banking focused. And that puts a very different lens on the kind of technological development you'll be looking at. So I think you make a very fair point in terms of they've been doing this for a while and they've managed to, in fact, like outstrip some of the larger American and even British players in that space. 
And one thing to add to that is if you remember with BBVA, they bought Simple. Simple was one of the first challengers from actually from the US. Shamir Karkul and others started it. They bought that. I think actually the acquisition was a bit hard to make work in a large bank, but it really showed, I think, that market's appetite to try to really innovate in terms of the PFM tools and consumer offerings they had. And then there was Ipigu by Carlos Sanchez, another challenger bank. Um, and I think even now, if we look across that market, Revolut's seen their biggest growth in their savings offering in Spain. So I think that market's really quite mature. They've really been like testing and trying to innovate in that space. And we're seeing other European fintechs now seeing good growth there. So I think it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's underestimated, but definitely they're, they're doing a lot of work and having some interesting strides. I'm not sure if everyone's aware of. I think Aditi is making a really interesting point about uh, sort of uh, investment banking and, co- and sort of large commercial and corporate banking, that the relatively large size of those in some of the banks in the UK and the United States actually hinders the retail banking because it reduces the focus. Whereas you go to markets like Turkey, Poland, Spain, where retail banking is the absolute focus, they're often a long, long way ahead of what you're seeing in the UK or the US. And I think I think there is sometimes a tendency to, to underestimate that. I, I want to come back to one thing you were saying, Aditi. I loved your point about, you know, hey, they're putting 100 people in in here out of, you know, 45,000 or whatever employees Scotia Bank has, and it, it's the largest retail bank in Spain. And you talked about, well, there's, if there's this huge profit improvement, that profit improvement is either going to come from selling customers more products or more likely from cutting out costs. And costs are either tech or people typically, or possibly marketing, but basically tech or people. I think you're saying, well, hmm, they're going to be cutting a bunch of people. Is that is that how you see the market evolving, do you think? Do you think the success of AI within banks is going to drive banks to cut people? Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting question. The unfortunate truth is that the answer to that question varies significantly by type of bank and also by geography. Because if you look at how cost structures are set up across banks, a lot of it is already outsourced either offshoring or nearshoring or BPOs or external providers and so on. So the productivity improvements that we see coming from AI will definitely change the requirement for the kind of jobs that are repetitive and very data entry and extraction oriented. Some banks have indeed managed to turn that around. So if you look at what Morgan Stanley wants to do with generative AI, it wants to reduce the time its relationship managers spend on looking for data that is then used for advice. Or there are new rules coming around in consumer duty which put requirements for relationship managers to make sure you have met your customer at least once every six months. Now, how are you going to get time in your calendar to do that if you spend most of your time finding out information or reading that data or reading market research reports and so on? But if you have a tool which just automates that for you, you're going to have a lot more time which you can then turn around and spend with more customers. So there are two aspects to that question. One is, yes, you're going to do less of what you were currently doing, which can be automated. And hopefully you can spend that time in doing more interesting, more value added, more advisory work. But there is indeed a whole set of people who are currently potentially sitting in centers in India or in Eastern Europe or across Asia who have only that as their job. Mm -hmm. And it is a big question that the industry faces now and all of us face now in terms of what do we substitute that with? What can we now train and upskill all of those people to still be able to do? And is AI going to be creating jobs at the same rate that it is automating 
them out? And I think that is still, like the answer to that is still not very clear. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave that to another episode. <laughs> and I would love to keep, I'd love to keep talking about this because this is such a, such a fascinating story. Um, thank you, Aditya. Brilliant analysis. But I'm going to move us on to our next story, which is that TikTok has invested $1.5 billion in Indonesia's e-commerce platform, Tokopedia. So Tokopedia is the e-commerce arm of Indonesia's go-to group, and the investment gives TikTok a 75% controlling stake. As part of the deal, Tokopedia will acquire TikTok Shop's Indonesia business for $340 million. The acquisition is a response to a change in regulation, which prohibited TikTok and all social media platforms from handling direct payments for online purchases. Other countries in Southeast Asia, including Vietnam and Malaysia, have suggested similar regulations could be on the way. There's a ton to unpack here. Super interesting. Rachel, I'm going to throw this to you first. Um, is this is this is this a good thing? I mean, so you've got the Indonesian regulators presumably trying to stop the social media platforms from from promoting everything to us on TikTok and every other platform that makes us all part with our money, and then TikTok's just said, "Okay, well, we'll just buy the e-commerce retailer." Then, yeah, I mean, in theory, this adds like a step, which is a little bit more friction, which. I'm a huge fan of like adding that one extra step before you commit to buying the thing that you saw some influencer do a dance around. Probably a great idea. <laughs> Caveat, I'm not a TikTok user. I don't actually know the content on there. But I think it's there's just there was a time and place to regulate social media and it's been and gone. And now we're in a position where we have to respond to the many use cases that we see cropping up. And it, it, social media now has the power it does partially because of that's the way society moved, partially because we had a global pandemic and the only way we had to talk to each other was these platforms. But we're seeing more and more targeted ads with the increased usage and influencer campaigns and promoted products. And we do need to see more done to protect consumer and consumer rights. And so I actually, I'm, I'm a little bit of an advocate for more regulation when it comes to some of these things. But we do have to recognize the scale of the organization and something like TikTok and the the, it's like it's basically an empire at this stage. I think they they're a business and they have to continue to survive at the level they are, or they crash. And so they are going to find a way to monetize, whether it's through acquisitions, whether it's through finding different business lines. And I think that our job now is to is to protect consumer duty, whether that's through regulation, whether that's through providing better ways for companies like TikTok to safely take payments without impulse buying another pair of Nordic socks that never get delivered. <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> Me Megan, what did, what, did you, what did you think? Um, yeah. is, this, is this a good move by the Indonesian regulators? Is TikTok sort of taking the mickey a bit? What do you think? Yeah, no, what I thought about immediately when I read this is that typically in Asia, what we've seen is a proliferation of super apps. So social media doing much more than you see in the UK or US or in the West, generally speaking. So WeChat, like Kakao Pay, Paytm, all these apps that are like social media and like payments and marketplaces all in one, just to a degree we don't see here. And part of that worked because it was not regulated to the same degree in terms of the financial side as it is in the West. So I think one of the reasons why we now see more regulation coming out of that part of the world might be that Southeast Asia is a small and scrappy market, or it might just be catching up to some degree. And I do wonder with TikTok buying them, I think there's, you know, kind of a relevant question of are they skirting the regulation? 
But typically, when you acquire a financial technology company, that part of the company still has to abide by its regulatory requirements. So really, we, the reason why you don't see the gammas acquiring financial companies in the same way or like buying a bank is because then they would be regulated like a bank. You know, so I would expect it's not skirting the regulation. They probably just have to you know, adhere to it through that particular vehicle now. Um, but yeah, I think it makes sense given the, the kind of history of regulation, the kind of super apps we've uh, seen coming out of that part of the world. Yeah, it's not, it's not a secret. The Indonesian regulators are well aware that TikTok is, <laughs> <laughs> is doing this. We're not blowing their cover. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Aditi. <laughs> yeah. My God, did you hear the podcast? TikTok is done. What? <laughs> this is shocking. <laughs> you promised you wouldn't. <laughs> but I, I think along those same lines, it's almost like, this is the standard movie that we see every time there is regulation with respect to any large organization, right? It's like you try to regulate um, on an ESG and sustainability front and you'll have the oil companies find a way around it. You try to regulate like any other set of systems and you will have the organizations that are large enough, have enough money and have enough of a footprint, find a way to make it easier for themselves. And to Megan's point, they will have to adhere to it in some way, shape or form. Um, but they are definitely going to see what they can do to make their own business manage it more easily than before. And I actually fall in the same camp as Rachel. I believe, especially in Southeast Asia, we need more regulation as far as all of these payment systems and purchasing systems and e-commerce is concerned. I was in India over the summer. And you see this proliferation of electronic payment methods everywhere. And the difference is that in the West, when we think of TikTok or Instagram or any of these channels, we typically think of a Gen Z or a millennial, like a sophisticated person doing a lot of impulse shopping, like you said, Rachel, of Nordic Socks. But in India, it is literally people who are maybe more of the elder generation retirees who are not really tech savvy, but still have the latest payment apps on their phones. And people who are not really in that discretionary buying segment who are still using these. Like I, I was walking down a street outside a children's park once and there was this banana seller. He did not even have a table to put the bananas on to sell them, but he had a little plastic tag with a phone pay QR code. So if you bought bananas from him, you could just pay by by QR code scanned on your phone. And therefore, it is to protect these people um, that we definitely need enough regulation. They need to have recourse. They need to know how to tackle and store from fraud. They need to know how to have all of that covered, which we take for granted in the West, uh, but doesn't really exist in Southeast Asia. So yeah, bring on the regulation, but then bring on ways of tackling people that try to circumvent it as well. I think it is like that two-track, and especially with TikTok, like... Megan raised a really good point there around these the super apps that do exist there. There's one part of it where it's you're enabling a creator or micro SME economy. And that's where TikTok and digital payments platforms like the banana seller with no table, it, they're super important. The other side of it is the consumer side where it's about user experience and making sure people are fully aware of what they're buying, when they're buying it, what that actually means for their financial position. And I think there's just we need to find a way to be able to provide for both use cases without setting one back. Like we shouldn't be debilitating these SMEs who don't have the money to have the super sophisticated business platforms, but at the same time just need to make sure that we're we're keeping an eye on consumer best interest. 
And that's where I'm I'm like, is it regulation? Is it just designing better products? Maybe we just need more of that kind of thinking coming into some of these apps because I don't know, sometimes I look at super apps and I'm not even sure how I'd begin to navigate them. And maybe that's just because I'm a millennial and we like things very sparse. But I think that's maybe it's a little bit more less about regulation, more about better user experiences. But is it? I, I mean, it seems to me that the Indonesian regulators come in here to try to to reduce the amount of shopping being done on social media, presumably because of their seeing the kind of impulse behaviors. And maybe while you should have known you didn't need those Nordic socks, or maybe you did need them and they didn't arrive. <laughs> I didn't buy sure them. The I was. just get, like, people get targeted <laughs> them, I promise. I had to write that down. I've never heard of these socks. Like, is that a gin thing I don't know of? Like, no, a it's note. a huge scam. <laughs> oh. They never come. Oh. This is. I'm going to send you guys articles afterwards. I promise it's a thing. Um, but yeah, so but, but sort of to come back to, to Aditi's point, I mean, I, isn't that what the regulator is really trying to do here is to um, reduce the number of instances where people buy things almost unknowingly. I mean, you because you, you come across all these instances all the time where, you know, children, you know, pick up their parents' phone and spend, you know, mm. £10,000 or whatever playing some game because the child has no idea that pressing the button for more gold coins is spending real money. Yeah. Um, isn't that probably where the regulation's coming from? I think so, but I, I also think that's just like, yeah, like Aditi's point around if you create regulation, people find a way around it. it like um, Megan and I briefly were talking about how, you know, when you try and push changes live in, in big banks like Barclays and you go through legal and compliance. And, you know, even we when we were designing user experiences, our legal and compliance teams would tell us very specific language we had to use. And we'd be like, but what about the user experience? Like, we're not talking about this in a way that our users talked about it on research. So how do we, how do we still bring that experience to life? And so... I don't know, like regulation is sometimes, I think it's regulating it in the right way rather than just saying no, because people are going to find a way around it. How do we have a more open dialogue around what it actually means to build a journey that's not at a user's like detriment? That said, these are big companies. So how do, how do you also be like, please still make money? <laughs> I don't know. One thing that just came to mind it's one of my favorite parts of working in banking, and it sounds funny to say, but it is the regulation. Like, I love that, particularly post-financial crisis, we hold ourselves to high standards personally and as organizations. I know it can be hard sometimes when there's, you know, a gaffe by one of the leaders and then they end up, you know, resigning in a public way. That's happened a number of times. Or if there's, you know, a launch that doesn't go well and someone is very personally fined, those stories tend to make headlines. But there are other industries that are so unregulated. It, like, I won't go into it, but I almost bought a horse earlier this year. But the whole equestrian industry is like the Wild West. <laughs> that and story like, is better than oh, Nordic socks. I oh definitely do want to hear the horse story. <laughs> oh, it's, they will sell you anything and promise you it's the best horse in the world. And it's so unregulated. There's like no recompense for it, right? But, and so I realized working in banking, you're just used to integrity without compromise. Like there's, you're personally accountable. If you're a senior manager, you can delegate tasks, but not responsibility. There's, you know, just such a nice way of working in this. So I kind of hope for Indonesia and Southeast Asia, as they kind of round out their regulation, it starts to mature. I think you know, regulation does just take time. It can take years and years to catch up. So we totally need it for social media. It just it's a slow process. But I hope that when they do it for the financial side of it, that it does have that kind of weight and respect that it does within finance, you know, in the UK and the US as well. So final question for the, for the three of you then is, is this a sort of 
Indonesia, Southeast Asia issue where it's got too easy to buy on social media. So the Indonesian regulator and maybe some others are bringing in some regulation to just sort of make it that little bit clearer what's advertising and what's shopping and what's just entertainment. Or is this actually something that that is uh, potentially a worldwide problem that's just, just becoming just too easy to be parted with your money um, on social media? Um, do, do we think we'll see this kind of regulation coming from, from other countries? Um, Megan? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think social media definitely needs tighter regulation. We saw that in, um, there was a UK bill this year, what was it called? The self-harms bill that came out. And I think we're starting to see some work in this area. I think it's just social media is still evolving and regulation is always, you know, a step behind the innovation, progress and technology. And so it will catch up. It might just take additional time, but I think we're working on it here as well. And we'll see more of that to come in the future. I also think there's a little bit of a behavioral element um, in this, and this is a slightly controversial opinion, but one of the things that I have often lived through myself is that there is an inherent tendency in the West to assume that care of you will be taken by the system. So whether it's medical, whether it's healthcare, whether it's laws, whether it's regulation, whether it's the police walking down the street, whether like any of those things, you expect that the government or the system or everything around you will be responsible for making sure that you are okay. And in Asia, especially Southeast Asia, it's the exact opposite. It's like you look out for yourself and everybody else is not going to do that or in some cases even out to get you and this is such a fundamental mindset difference so like even when you go into a shop to shop say in India you're going to be like is this the right price am I paying too much do I need to haggle whereas here it's like yeah I see something on the website I press pay now without even thinking about whether my money is safe or not and so on and I think there's a little bit of that difference that also then flows into how much regulation comes in how much already exists are the basic bare minimum covered versus not and so on so my expectation is that as technology bridges that divide, uh, almost like the cultures start merging, I actually think we'll see a lot more regulation coming out from Asia and from other emerging markets, almost to catch up with what the West already has as the basic standard. And then eventually, hopefully, it'll homogenize and kind of reach a lowest common denominator to settle into. Yeah, that's it's actually such a good point. I often... I'm so shaped by my experiences in the UK and I forget that like my family's Indian and this is when when we go to India you just you switch mindset completely and it's a different way of operating and and to that point it is like it's amazing that we're starting to see these kind of sweeping regulations to push it I think the fact that it's operating in Southeast Asia it has more it's more of a move from a regulator than it would be in the UK like I think I think about what we've seen in Instagram and how creators now have to say by the way this is sponsored content and that stuff has now come through but these are just micro <laughs> micro advances so perhaps we're about to see this exponential increase in the regulation in in other global markets as we all get to the same level playing field and then that's when we see some more meaningful change for some of these social media companies because it does I don't know, I feel like a little bit jaded sometimes with social media. I, it definitely feels like the landlord that just has all the power and we're just these helpless <laughs> renters <laughs> hoping for the best while we use these platforms. And you are you are the product 
on those platforms. You are, and you know it, especially when you see a targeted ad, be it Nordic socks or horses. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, it'd be great to feel that power dynamic shift again, because we have just been giving them our data and time for so long. When does that turn into something that's better for us other than doom scrolling? I love targeted ads. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I want them to use all my data. I found so many good things to buy that way. I mean, I haven't seen these socks and I love socks. So it's a good thing or else I would have been scammed for sure. But <laughs> I, I now want to see Megan's house to see how much rubbish there is that she doesn't need in it. But we'll see. Right. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, a quick note to check out our most recent FinTech Insider Insights show. In this very special episode, we bring you some exclusive conversations with our 2023 11FS Hall of Famers. The 11FS Hall of Fame celebrates the people shaping our industry for the better and was key part of our 11FS awards. And we had the pleasure of sitting down with some of our inductees for a one-on-one -on -one conversation. We dig into their achievements, how they did it, what they're most proud of, you don't want to miss it. So go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. And our next story uh, was reported in the FinTech Times, and it's that Network International has joined Huawei to consolidate the UAE's leading position in e-commerce. Network International, which is a payments company in the UAE, is partnering with Huawei to provide end-to-end -end card processing and managed payment services for financial services customers. Through this partnership, they're hoping to support new payment companies in the UAE. Network International is one of the biggest payments companies in the Middle East and is looking to champion a digital-first approach and encourage a faster, more efficient payments infrastructure. A spokesman for Network International said, the last three years have witnessed a dramatic shift in consumer attitudes towards digital payments, leading to higher demand and expectation for seamless digital interactions. We look forward to supporting Huawei through our best-in-class solutions to facilitate the digital journey of digital payment players. Rachel, what did you make of this? <laughs> I... Um totally expected to see such big movement in the Middle East. The um, the marketplace, the fintech ecosystem is just vast. And I think the UAE, they, I, I almost feel like they had a little bit of a head start on some of the other players in the GCC. We're now starting to see that playing field even out, but it's still, the UAE is still a really important area. I, I read a stat, venture funding in fintech in the Middle East and North Africa region rose to 925 million dollars in 2022 from 587 million in 2021 so we're seeing almost a 60 percent increase in the amount of funding into into fintechs and the leader of that is digital payments because the economy that we were talking a little bit earlier around digital payments and super apps and how people manage their money in southeast asia this is it's so big in the middle east so i think that this is an exciting shift, an expected shift. Um, definitely um, not surprising considering how the Middle East is changing, how they operate. Uh, we're moving away from an oil-based industry to a knowledge-based economy. That means more investment in other kinds of things. FinTech is one of those great things and it brings better talent to the region. It brings more interesting innovations. So yeah, it's, I think it's 
just one of the great stories coming out of the Middle East and GCC at the moment. Aditi, what did you think at, at Instabase? Are you, uh, are you seeing the same kind of picture of just um, so much vibrancy, so much opportunity coming from, from sort of Middle Eastern countries like the, the UAE? We are, absolutely. And it's very interesting because until, um, until about last year, our focus and our go-to-market um, process was very US and Europe based, but we are absolutely now seeing a whole lot of interest out of the Middle East and the organizations, the large enterprises there that works on both sides. So it's both the investor space as well into startups, into fintech, as well as the organizations that are trying to adopt new technology. So it's both ways. And there's actually been a very interesting global dynamic that has also bolstered that a little bit in the sense that if you look at transformation and technology investment budgets across the world, the Middle East is the one place where these have increased across the board, whereas everywhere else, people are cutting down on the money that they can set aside for new technology investment. And from that perspective, this is a great time for the organizations there to kind of make such investments and adopt new technology and so on. Like, again, to Rachel's point, putting their money where their mouth is. If you look at the sovereign wealth funds across the Middle East, and they hold close to 40% of assets across global sovereign wealth funds, their portfolio allocations have shifted so dramatically over the last couple of years from low risk, low return kind of global investments to looking a lot more at alternatives, to looking a lot more at startups and VC funding, a significant focus on sustainability and multiple different avenues that they had never kind of looked into and invested before. So I think that entire push towards welcoming in what is new, like from a technology perspective, from a people perspective, from a new companies and partnerships perspective, I think that is definitely a trend that is going to increase in the coming years. That's really, really interesting. Um, Megan, I'm going to throw you a slightly unfair question now, and if you can't answer it, it's entirely reasonable. Is there is there a sort of infrastructure angle to, to this this story here? So I was interested that you know they're making they're sort of trumpeting the fact that they've partnered with Huawei. Does it? How much does it matter having a big infrastructure partner in the background? Right when we were talking about Kaiser Bank partnering with Microsoft, you can see okay, Microsoft you know gets you access to ChatGPT and OpenAI, and and so it's very clear what Microsoft brings to to Kaiser Bank. What does a player like Huawei, and not necessarily Huawei, but you know, what does the sort of having a big tech partner like that bring to to someone like a ClearBank or a Network International? Does it does it matter? Yeah. Is it important? Well, I think the reality is is that um, just to echo the points made previously, is that in the Middle East and in the UAE, what they're seeing is just a huge shift away from energy and looking into knowledge based economies, and as part of that. Um, wanting to move into banking and payments, it does have complex infrastructure and that can take a long time to build out and it also takes a lot of talent to build it that can be difficult to recruit. So I think sometimes acquisitions and partnerships are a way to get to market faster and at lower cost with giving you the additional ability to focus on your own differentiating feature set wherever you happen to have talent and ability to really do something notably different. From my own personal experience, the thing I've seen over the past couple of years is a lot of headhunters from Dubai in particular reaching out. I know one of our uh, like premier executives, Rahil Ahmed from Barclays is now in Dubai working at, I don't know how to say the name of the bank, it's R-A-K Bank, Rack Bank maybe. Um, yeah, so he's leading there, but a number of 
Uh, different banks have reached out over the years and to different friends. I hear that headhunters are targeting them. It seems like they're really trying to poach talent uh, to bring into that region. So I think they're just looking at like, where can we partner? Where, what can we acquire? What talent can we bring in to really start to help shift us uh, into these sectors that we really want to grow as we move away from energy? And to our like conversation earlier around some of these regions, you know, regulation coming later to to catch up or or have, however we'd like to describe it, this this acquisition play, I think, is it is the modern and agile way of doing it. If you if the capability exists, why why build it, buy it, and like learn from it, and then develop on top of it. And I think that you know these. <laughs> oil money gives you the opportunity to make huge bets. And I think some of these bets will pay off and, and some of them won't. And I, I don't think we'll see the impact of that until much later. But it does make a lot of sense to bring this acquisition play in because it also brings a completely different community and, and structure from it. I think in Dubai, we're seeing a lot of the like the expat communities, which used to be once very isolated, but now a lot of the expats are just, it's just a part of your your jobs and your daily life. And I think, you know, we see it in Saudi where actually it, they've done a lot of um, bringing in of external talent, but also protected domestic mm-hmm. um, employees to ensure that they are still in really important roles like marketing and like brand and all of that stuff. So I, I think that it's, it's a nice, exciting, like, shake-up of the industry. Like, we, we in the UK, we've always been like, oh, we're the leaders in fintech and all of this stuff. And now someone is moving really quickly with a lot more money than we have to be playing in this space. What does that mean for the innovation that comes out of us? Because we don't, we don't have an oil money pot. How do we compete and still provide the we best did. services? We did, Yeah. Anyway. So, um, I think <laughs> one, um, so, similar to what Megan was saying, I think, the, in my mind, the biggest bottleneck to that growth is going to be the people. It's it's the talent because yes, they have money, um, and like some of the offers. Like w- one very interesting aspect of all of this is that a lot of these organizations in the Middle East now guarantee the same schooling and an entry back into the original British school that your child came from if you agree to go and take up a job and stay there for whatever number of years. So they're like, we guarantee that our sister school in the UK will take you back if you should choose to move back and all sorts of stuff. So they're definitely amping up the attraction quotient of moving there for expats. But at the same time, it is it is going to be a big challenge that they face. And Rachel, to your point, it's like, I think the only differentiator we have in the UK at the moment is the fact that this has been a center of fintech talent for a long time and people want to stay here and live here and come here. Um, but again, like it's only a matter of time where the funding and the money sort of starts evening that out. Has has been. I can't really see that being a slogan in a sort of political party's <laughs> <laughs> promotion of the market. Right. Let, let's move on uh, to, our next, to our final story, our final big story, uh, which is that Canopy Ventures has launched a $750 million fund to back US fintechs. The US venture capital firm is on a mission to create a more inclusive and equitable financial ecosystem, according to the report in Altfight. Over 70 institutions and investors have backed the $750 million fund, which will be used to support fintechs and emerging innovations within the bank and fintech ecosystems. The fund will prioritize backing diversity and leadership. Canopy boasts 61% of C-suite members in its portfolio, coming from minorities, women, or veterans. Megan, uh, 
does does US fintech need more backing? Um, is this is this exciting? What do you think? Yeah, I think it is exciting. I mean, I think given, I mean, the global economy has you know been a bit slow. I think when we look at economic cycles, we see typical expansions and contractions. And you know, at the tail end of two thousand nineteen. Everyone was just talking about how we were at the late stage of an expanding credit cycle. We knew it would contract back at some point, and then finally it happened. But then obviously it creates a sort of fintech stress test, you know. And so now you're seeing across lots of different companies, uh, you know, layoffs happening, you know, less investments uh, as part of that. So I think seeing this funding is definitely a positive sign. I do think it mirrors some of the same patterns that we've been seeing in terms of being largely, you know, seed and Series A. Uh, you do have some up that has a you know a larger round. I, I don't know if that's an anomaly or a sign of things to come that you're going to start seeing more of those kind of later stage investments as well. Um, but I think all in all, it's a huge positive, and I I like the focus of it. So um, I think yeah, I think it's it's all positive. It's needed. It's good, and it's it's great to see. Rachel, it, it's easy to say words like more inclusive and more mm. equitable. Um, <laughs> it's quite a lot harder to actually achieve that. Um, Putting on a positive view, what what how could they go about doing that? How might you go about creating a sort of more inclusive and equitable? I think the the first thing is by stats like the number of your C suite members who are who are in a minority group because that's if you as a company aren't set up to to account for those needs, you you can't meaningfully make those changes so already you're saying if you have a just old white men like me i would never (laughs) benjamin i also would like to say that benjamin was a really active member on our dei group so i think you you're you're well qualified to speak on this one but no i think it starts by you yourself as an organization having the right voices in the room to to be able to expertly lead lead in this space but then it also the opportunity in the U.S. is just so vast. Like, I think I saw that the U.S. was fourth when it comes to financial inclusion, which in theory is not a bad step. But fourth is it fourth in a good way or fourth in a bad way? Oh, a good way, good way. <laughs> but like in theory, like not bad. But in practice, I think um, I was reading a, a great McKinsey report around inequality, and they said this one quote: "While the wealth gap has narrowed globally." Inequality within advanced economies has increased since the 1980s. And I think that is the opportunity here and putting money towards solving that. It's not just about investing in companies who have diverse leadership, because I think that's what a lot of people are like, oh, we've got a diverse portfolio because look at these founders. And yes, that is super important. The second thing is making sure that these founders are then doing something amazing with their businesses. And that is the you know, alternative credit scoring, actually making that stick, trying to build healthy credit, healthy lending, not just leaning into short-term lending solutions like like Klarna and, and other products that are easy to fund with confidence, but in practice, the, the benefit to customers is lower. And so I think that there are a lot of ways that this could could be a great thing considering the size of the prize and the opportunity, but it's important that there is structure and measurements around how they do that. So having a really good, like, I was going to say metrics, but that sounds like really crappy, but like, essentially it's, it is the metrics that you're measuring in your business that aren't just around profitability and aren't just around customer numbers, but instead around what you're trying to do and and the communities you're trying to change the lives of. Yeah, I presume it's the sort of purpose with which you in, 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 in invest that money. Aditi, please, please come in with your perspective. Yeah, I think 
So first of all, it's a it's a great thing. Um, I also especially liked how the fund said that they will have a strong focus on things related to sustainability and ESG overall um, and so on. So I think the fact that they're focusing on those things is amazing. The one concern that I have with this, though, is that the only way it will continue to happen, and again, to Rachel's point, the only way they will be able to measure success on an ongoing basis is if they can show the returns from this. And while there is extensive research on large corporations that have women on the board or women in leadership positions, I don't think we have enough information or enough data to demonstrate why a seed company or a series A startup of a certain leadership composition, which is diverse and inclusive, performs better than equivalent peers. So there's a little bit of a question around if we can't measure it, we can't like do it or show it or prove it. So I think there's there's a bunch of effort which should go in there. And then once the returns become obvious, obviously that's where the money is going to follow. And if you look at the statistics, they're still pretty dismal, right? Like female founders still get less than three to four percent, whichever way you cut the data of total VC funding and so on. But even from a purely mathematical point of view, that doesn't make sense. So are we just not measuring it? Are we not kind of showing the returns? Like what is the missing piece? So I think that's a big um, question mark in all of this for me. I think I'm part of that because there are so many fewer female founders. I wonder if that's why such a small percentage of funding goes to them. But also, I mean, all of the other issues as well. But I think I really like the Rose Review here in the UK that looked at all the different ways we could support female entrepreneurs, we could motivate women to start companies to then invest in them. But to your point, the, you know, the the challenges that were women were facing to gain investment were, you know, uh, more challenging than what they were finding their male peers had. But I think also in the UK, we have the Women in Finance Charter that applies really good metrics to how we measure like how are we actually driving diversity? How many women do we have, not only in the company, but across different roles? Are they in engineering and product, as well as marketing and HR? Are they in senior positions or entry-level positions? Are they on the board? I think that sort of breakdown, rather than just saying we're inclusive and we have 40% women and they're all in customer support, you know, is it's a good breakout I think we have here in the UK that in the US and in, in some of these VC companies could benefit from as well. It's like really kind of, you know, uh, puts more data behind it. I like that. So that's the sort of thing we'd want to see from from companies that are, that are saying, you know, we want to be more inclusive and more equitable. Is great. Show us, show us how. Tell us how. It's a huge thing. Like so many DEI um, work streams and heads of DEI, their their sole job is trying to identify the right metrics to measure because we're so good at creating dashboards for profitability and bugs when you're building things but we're not as good at trying to effectively measure you know how many women do we have in leadership but also how many have we promoted through how many came in because they were senior elsewhere and they probably weren't getting promoted so they came here to get that rise we're just talking about women here because I think we're three women talking to one another <laughs> and Benjamin but I think like there are so many others you know what what does it mean for if you're part of multiple different groups, and I've completely forgotten the word for that, but I think this is the thing that to do this well comes with putting the same rigor towards metrics for this as you would for your investment thesis. But I, it's the point. I think the point around creating the more inclusive, equitable financial ecosystem is about creating better products, and and that the US is in dire need of that in the fintech space. Intersectionality. That was the word. The word. <laughs> 
Thank you, Benjamin. <laughs> okay, last very quick question for all three of you on this then. Where would you see, so very quickly, where would you see an opportunity for more inclusive or more equitable investments or in, in, in inclusive or equitable startups? Um, bonus point if it can be in the United States. But <laughs> um, do you have examples of where you could see opportunities for more inclusive or equitable finance? I I always think about alternative credit because of the lack of access to credit that so many groups have, particularly um, uh Black African Americans, they they really struggle to get access to credit in the first place. So trying to solve that through generative AI, better uses of technology, like this is the stuff that it's designed for. It's the stuff that doesn't get you funding straight away, but would through a fund like this. Love it. Uh, Aditi? So I don't have very specific examples, but I heard an anecdote um, a few days back, which really stuck with me, which is that I forget the name of the company, but it's a company run by and founded by three women who are selling healthcare or um, like products for medical and healthcare usage by women. And they could not get funding because VC said to them, we don't have enough confidence in you as three female founders. And they're like, we're a company which is building products for women, run by women, and you don't have confidence in us. So I think that overall, like women's health, women's mental health, like I think that space is something which should theoretically see a preponderance of female founders, and it doesn't. So I think that would be another area where uh, extra investment should happen. Last word to you, Megan. Yeah, no, I think that's just a great point. Not only venture capital, but funding specifically towards female products. I saw, and I'm not going to remember the exact statistic, but I saw a really interesting statistic about how fewer like female innovative products there were because of a lack of like female led companies. So like it would be like male leaders working on like female products. And so um, it, it was, it gave a few interesting examples, but I do think, yeah, with a lack of data, with a lack of funding, with a, a number of challenges that have, you know, been kind of faced in that sector, I think not only venture capital generally going to female led companies, but female led companies building female targeted products is probably like a specific niche that's hard to, to gain investment on. Well, let's hope that Canopy Ventures can fulfill the promise that they are they are making. Um, so best of luck uh, to, the, to the team there. Okay, now for Big Click Energy, which is a, just a quick look at uh, one more news story this week, uh, which I'll just quickly summarize. So Citi has led an investment round into the Colombian B2B fintech Supra. Founded earlier this year, Supra offers cross-border payments and treasury services to small and medium-sized enterprises in Colombia. The investment will be used to accelerate expansion across the country by using Citi's FX technology platforms. The Colombian tax authorities estimate the market for B2B cross-border payments in Colombia at 134 billion US dollars in 2022, so big market. And Citi is uh, the latest in a series of international banks um, announcing investments into Latin America. So, you know, really interesting story. Payments and treasury is such a huge opportunity. It's often really frustrating doing cross-border trade. And, you know, to some extent, the smaller the economy, the more dependent you are on cross-border trade. And yet it's often incredibly difficult. Um, it's fascinating seeing fintechs all around the world being set up to solve the problem. And it's really interesting to see how the way there were some of the big global banks then gradually sort of trying to bring them into their portfolios because they realized that some of these fintechs are building really interesting uh, capabilities and just making it so much easier for businesses that are trying to do trying to survive and, and thrive on on cross border trade. So um, very happy to to see that story and best of luck to the team at Supra. 
Okay, so now it's time for the and finally section of the show, which is a look at something a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. And as it's nearly Christmas, uh, we're going to take a look at what's on your fintech naughty and nice list this year. It's been an interesting year for fintech. So as we sign off for Christmas, we asked you, our listeners, to tell us what or who makes your naughty and nice list. There was certainly consensus among you that... uh, Ex-Tesla owner Elon Musk uh, deserves a lump of coal uh, this year. Uh, One of our LinkedIn community, Paul Anderson, who is currently a senior program manager at PayPal, called out Revolut for the naughty list. Um, However, Paul did add Griffin to the nice list, adding, in an increasingly robust regulatory environment, they're doing something interesting while taking all their regulatory responsibilities seriously. So, what or who is on your fintech naughty and nice list this year, and why? Um, Rachel, should I throw it to you first? I feel bad because I could only think of the naughty list. <laughs> but Klarna, stop being nicer to your customers. Start thinking about consumer best interests. Stop people putting people in bad financial situations. Buy now, pay later. Less, more customer-led buy now, pay later New Year. Um, so call, call for those. But um, Maybe maybe at the end of this, I'll have thought of a nice one. There's There's been loads of really cool stuff this year. Can, oh, actually, I've got one. Can I th- talk about a fintech adjacent? Go on. Anthropic. Claude AI is phenomenal. I love how you've created a really good AI model um, that answers my questions really effectively. So, yes, Anthropic. Great work in the AI space. Fantastic. Uh, Megan. Yeah. So um, for Naughty, I could like the first one that came to mind. It's almost so obvious. I I hesitate to name it, but is SBB. Like, (laughs) I mean, you know, there were just so many mistakes in the U.S. on like both sides of the balance sheet with the hold of maturity bonds and everything that happened. Um, I mean, just a million things went wrong to to lead to the scenario. But I think that kind of qualifies for the Naughty list fairly. Um, For the nice list, actually, this is a bit cheeky. But I think 11FS, in terms of what David Brayer has led with bone cancer research, I was at the 11FS Awards, and I love that they do that every year. I love that they had Nick Hungerford's wife from Nutmeg. So he passed away. He was the founder of Nutmeg, and his wife was there, and he had started this charity in his like final months called Elizabeth Smile, which is after his daughter to like help bereaved families who are grieving. And I just thought everything that they did in that space was so beautiful. That 11FS is generally wonderful. So I'm a big fan, obviously, uh, thus being here. But I thought that in particular really kind of puts you guys on the nice list for sure. It was it was really great work. Even our podcast producer's written that great answer, Megan, you'll be invited back. So <laughs> she's nailed it. <laughs> the dinner is delicious. So I will take you up on that. And David Bear always has the best like sparkly jackets. So I need to see that every year. So so I'll count on that. <laughs> Editee, who's on your uh, naughty or nice list. Right now, the pressure has just been up, hasn't it? It's like, oh my goodness, I have to go last. And go how with can clear I ever bank hope to on beat nice. that? Yeah, I was about to say that. Like, at least maybe Megan will buy me dinner if not 11 FS. <laughs> no, I think um, so. On the nice list, I was also definitely going to go with the AI foundational models, Rachel. I think that has completely changed the industry and our lives. Um, but I have. Let me start with the naughty first, and it's kind of in keeping with the theme of our discussion earlier. I'm going to be a bit cheeky in how I put this also. It's a four-letter word beginning with F that we really, really need to fix going forward, and that is funding for female fintech founders. Um, And I think that definitely needs to change from whoever it is who has the money and is going to be doing that in the future. 
And on the nice list, as I was reading through some of these news stories, I came across this article where Santander UK has actually set up a education program for adults where they're going to upskill 500,000 people in digital and sustainability skills over the next three years. And I know that NatWest and Barclays, they all have these programs to help people get more comfortable with digital banking and get more savvy online and so on. And I think we definitely need to see more big companies lean in on the education and tech enablement side of things. So I think they would definitely make my nice list for this year. I'm going to join in with a nice list I prepared earlier. I was I was fortunate to be one of the judges on the 11FS Awards. And cheating. I am cheating. I am <laughs> cheating, but I did I put a lot of time into this. So um, the I want to just call out the companies on the fintech for good um, list, for the nice list, because companies like Circa 5000, Factoring UA and SPO Software, uh, LAC Chain, Lulu Bank, Papara, are doing really great work. They're doing the kind of work we were talking about earlier about how do we improve um, inclusion, how do we improve sustainability, and so on. So I'm going to put them onto the nice list because those companies are all working hard to improve social good, sustainability, uh, or even smashing the patriarchy, which my daughter would be very proud of. Um, it's not just me specifically. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so... As we break for the holidays, how do you all switch off? Um, what, are you switching off? And how do you switch off? Um, Megan, um, this is an opportunity for you to mention the horse you've bought. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, did not buy. I vetted it. It was not good. Um, no, it's a really good question for me, though, because I'm on gardening leave right now before I start at ClearBank, uh, first thing in the new year. And I've realized I had envisioned gardening leave as this luxurious time of relaxing and doing nothing. And I instantly filled it with all my hobbies. And I'm like just as busy as when I was working. But like I play the cello and I do dressage and, and I'm training for a marathon. And so just between all of that and like these amazing awards dinners like 11FS host, it's like kind of a busy time of the year. Um, so my switching, I don't know that I'm really good at switching off. I've, I've decided the best way for me to do it is to just carve out really intentional time to like not book anything in and then I'll switch off. But the holidays are great for me because you just have pre-planned, you know, just relaxing time with the family where I don't tend to overbook various hobbies. So I think the switching off is kind of natural for me around Christmas and New Year. So hopefully that'll, that'll be good. How did he? I have two little kids. So as of tomorrow, my break will stop. And then my break will start again <laughs> in January. Uh, but no, no, not to be flippant there. I think I have um, an entire folder of uh, to-read emails and links and pages which I've opened and never gotten around to and books which I have on a list and never gotten around to. And I tend to do this where end of the year, I sort of update my life plan for the next year. Now, Invariably, most of it never gets done, but I tend to use this break to sort of reprioritize and reallocate and draw lines through stuff which I know is never going to happen. And then it sort of just refocuses me to, to start the next year. So it's, it's just a lot of project planning, which in itself is a good break because you can just eliminate a whole bunch of stuff which never happened. I will be reading, doing a load of reading because I set myself a reading target of uh, 40 books this year and I got distracted and now it's my job to read 19 books before the end of the year. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually confident I'm going to do it. So between that and finding any opportunity to jump in the very cold sea in Yorkshire, 
I think it'll be well and truly switched off from from the day to day because I, I think I find, especially as a product manager, I spend most of my time on a computer or on calls or just staring at a screen or a different device, checking emails, checking whatever document. And so I think anything to just take a minute away from the screen and then come back refreshed in the new year with hopefully well-rested eyes. Definitely. What about you, Benjamin? It's definitely a good call, getting away from screens, getting outside. So I will, as much as the British weather allows, I will get outside and go for lots of long walks um, and then maybe light a fire when I get back. Um, so yes, time away from time away from screens and probably some reading as well. But I haven't set myself 19 books? No way. <laughs> well, not long ones anyway. <laughs> I might pick up Haikus. 19 books when I yeah. actually read them. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you all very much. That wraps up this week's FinTech Insider News. So thank you so much to my three guests today, or our three guests. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Uh, Entity, where can people find out a little bit more about you? I think LinkedIn would be the best source. And yeah, contact me on LinkedIn. Uh, Megan? Probably LinkedIn or X as we call it now, but I still use my maiden name Kaywood. So you have to go for Megan Kaywood, which is what I am on there, even though I'm Megan Kaywood Cooper now. I like the way American women sort of adopt two surnames for a bit before dropping. It's a system. No, I got the Forbes 30 under 30 and all of my fame in the UK under Megan Kaywood. And so <laughs> it's like, and Megan Cooper, I was Megan.Cooper2 at Barclays. <laughs> I wasn't even the first one there. And so like Megan Cooper is such a common name. So it's it's not by design. It's just by accident of useful fame, making it hard <laughs> to have a married name. <laughs> and Rachel. I have no issues with youthful fame. So, um, <laughs> I'm the only Amrita Rachel Pandian, I think, on LinkedIn. And if you want to see me really struggle on my reading channel, find me on Goodreads. And as for me, uh, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can find out more about what the team are up to at 11fs.com. So thank you to all of you for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media. Take part in our LinkedIn polls or even email us at podcast at 11fs.com if there's things you'd want to hear about. Thank Thank you all so much. Uh, happy holidays and goodbye.